A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. going to read some uh, news clips here, some quotes that might sound familiar. It's becoming apparent that no one wants to work in these hard times. Here's another one. The trouble is, everybody is on relief. No one wants to work anymore. One more here. No one wants to work anymore. They all want to work in front of a computer and make lots of money. So is that true? Does no one want to work anymore? Are those media quotes correct? Was Kim Kardashian right? I mean, it's hard to turn on the news without seeing a story about businesses struggling to hire workers, office buildings empty because everybody's staying home. You know, try to force them back into the office, they'll just quit. Or they'll quiet quit, and you'll end up paying them for months while they do nothing. This is a new thing. It's a post-pandemic thing. It's a millennial workers kind of thing. But... It's actually not. Those media quotes are not from recent news reports. They are from the press of 1894, 1940, and 1999, respectively. And there are plenty more. 1916, York Daily Record. The reason for food scarcity is that no one wants to work as hard as they used to. 1937, Binghamton Press. Peach orchardists in York and Adams counties are complaining that nobody wants to work anymore. Yeah, the news media has been publishing incredibly similar versions of that story for at least 129 years. And that's only going as far back as most of these archives go. It is what's called a trope. And it's one that we, the news media, have been perpetuating literally for generations. There are lots of other media tropes that you will find in newspaper archives from any decade. Technology is harming our kids. The art of conversation is dead. 
School today has become too easy. You might have seen some of this through the work of one Paul Ferry. He has gone viral again and again for digging up old newspaper clippings, showing how the things that we said in 1890 are the same things we are saying today in 2023, even when they're not really true. I mean, we're still running with people just don't want to work anymore, even though unemployment rates are near all-time lows and productivity rates are at all-time highs. There are plenty of journalists and plenty of newsrooms that still care very much about accurate and responsible and sober reporting. But maybe we have more in common with the hysterical press of days gone by than we would like to admit. Maybe everything that's happening now is nothing new. Maybe what is happening to the press, increased online partisanship, slipping standards in order to get a bigger audience, maybe all of that is itself a trope. Could it be that we are simply reliving the old days of pamphleteers and yellow journalism? Well, reporter Sheree Sutrin is going to find out where news tropes come from and why news media history seems to be repeating. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Don Ward, Esther Bruins, Judith Loheed, Amanda Rivers, Christine Lightfoot, Steve Deckert, Amelia Radishevsky, and Sloan. My name is Sloan McGowan. I'm a Toronto-based artist and filmmaker, and I support Canada Land because I value well-researched, thought-provoking journalism that offers a voice to communities that historically haven't had one. Mars peopled by one vast thinking vegetable, reads a headline in the Salt Lake Tribune in October 1912. The article explains that according to Professor Campbell of the Lick Observatory, the planet Mars is overrun with large plants capable of independent thought. In fact, each plant has a single human-like eye growing right out of its stalk. A detailed drawing of this vegetable takes up nearly half the front page. If you read the Salt Lake Tribune in 1912, this story about alien vegetables wouldn't have been particularly unusual. But today, over a hundred years later, the Salt Lake Tribune is a Pulitzer Prize-winning independent newspaper. Their motto? Truth. Empowerment. Community. The modern idea of what the news media is, and does, is vastly different than it was even a hundred years ago. The media industry experienced a huge shift from the late 18 and early 1900s to today. Back in the day, stories found in newspapers were heavy on entertainment value, light on facts, and, well, kind of weird. Paul Ferry is a university instructor and researcher based in Calgary, with an upcoming book exploring newspaper archives. Yes, so the, the Mars plant is a great example sort of of the, there, there was a common feature in a lot of U.S. papers, especially where they would have like a Saturday or Sunday kind of pseudo magazine, uh, definitely just printed as part of the newspaper, but they, they would have these sort of longer pieces and you think, oh, are they, are they deep dives into important issues? Generally not. It, it was usually more things like Mars being populated by a thinking vegetable. And I mean, the best part, I think, by, by this period was 
they got better at printing illustrations. So you get these fantastical illustrations of, I mean, there was one about uh, jazz causing big ears. So they had this great illustration of, of this woman, you know, uh, probably just a photograph, I assume. And they, they clearly like enlarged the ear part of the photograph to seven or 10 times what it would normally be. And you think, okay, A, ludicrous, B, Excellent, like, like, great job. I mean, entertainment value, 10 out of 10. Paul has also found many instances of these 19th and 20th century newspapers taking liberties with their sources. Kind of olden days clickbait before the internet or clicking. Another thing that you see, I think the, the Mars vegetable story is a great example of, is sort of newspapers almost kind of abusing the good name of um, an expert. So the follow-up to the Mars story is that the expert that they quoted, you know, was very angry about this. He said, he definitely misquoted me. I never said anything about this. I made one comment about Mars might have people on it. And then you turned it into this whole story about a, about this thinking vegetable. And, and, and so, like, newspapers are definitely... I'll be generous here and say twist um, what um, experts would say. And, and just to make it into... Honestly, it just like a more readable, more eye-catching, almost a bit like whatever clickbait would have been at the time. But Paul says the key difference between early newspapers and present-day media is how overtly political it used to be. Definitely. I mean, I wouldn't even say papers necessarily had like an ideology, like being left-wing or right-wing, but they really had very strongly like a partisan identity. So it wasn't about defending socialism or conservatism or anything. It was about defending the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. So this is especially true in the US. Like, you look at the most common newspaper names even. So you get the normal ones, the Times, the Herald, uh, all this sort of thing. But beyond that, it's, you know, it's the Republican, it's the Democrat, it's the Whig even, where you'll see like, you know, the Vermont Standard Republican will be the name of, of a newspaper. So newspapers were never this sort of nonpartisan um, standard of, of neutral reporting on issues. They were even more than today, way more, 10 times more explicitly even so, um, like, like a, an organ of, a, of political parties. While Paul's research looks at a lot of American media, this open partisanship used to be a defining part of Canadian media as well. There was a healthy news business in Canada at the turn of the 20th century. By 1917, over 100 newspapers were circulating across the country, from large daily papers to small community newsletters. And many of these were directly tied to political parties, and editorial content was made for followers of that party. This is Gene Allen. He's an adjunct professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, focusing on the history of media and communication. Beginning really in the, in the 18-teens and 1820s, there were small-scale, mostly political papers that represented either the, the, the kind of Tory establishment or increasingly uh, in Quebec and in Ontario, the opposition politicians like William Lyon Mackenzie uh, or, or his counterparts in, in Quebec. And so the, the press in Canada, as in the United States, was very much uh, kind of a partisan political operation for most of the 19th century. I mean, in the partisan press of the 19th century, if a, a candidate of your party gave a speech, it was the most brilliant speech in world history. And if a candidate from the opposition party made a speech, if it was covered at all, it was absolutely a disaster. These deep political biases among news outlets 
even existed in the Canadian Parliamentary Press Gallery. In its infancy, the press gallery functioned very differently than it does today. A book on the history of the press gallery called Sharp Wits and Busy Pens dives deep into this history. In a talk at Carleton University in 2016, co-author Josh Wingrove talked about how journalists were strictly divided along party lines. As you can imagine, you know, the certain governments now like to talk about the liberal media or whatever, or the filter of the media. Uh, it was a lot worse back then. There was the only way you were getting anything out of there unless you attended in person was by, by the filter of the media. Uh, so that, that, has, that has changed a lot. The, uh, there used to be a lot more hand in glove with government. It's really remarkable by today's standards. I mean, journalists sat on the same side of the house that their party sat on. You were either a liberal paper or you were a conservative paper. And you switch sides in the viewing gallery based on that. You know, that, that is unheard of today. You, you know, <laughs> we're a little more subtle. But after World War I, everything changed. News media began to evolve into something that more closely resembles the press as we know it today. They began adopting standards of neutrality, objectivity, and factual accuracy. Except that they didn't do so out of a moral desire to tell the truth. It was largely to make money. Around the end of the century, newspaper publishing began to look for larger audiences and find a different economic model, which is based on advertising. And the whole point of having uh, advertising as your revenue is that you need to get the largest possible number of readers. News coverage began to become less overtly biased, and news agencies were a big part of that because they supplied news, up-to-date news through the Telegraph, to all kinds of newspapers at once, and it had to be uh, news that could be printed in papers of different political affiliations. So that's how you get a big audience, which is how you get advertising revenue, which is how you're then able to produce these big, huge papers of, you know, 80, 100 pages, hundreds of thousands of copies, very, very big physical plant required a lot of capital investment required to put them out. In short, journalism became a very big business. Upholding journalistic standards was seen as important to a functioning democracy. And that's still the case for most news outlets. But sometimes those principles of accuracy and fairness go out the window, and the media gets caught up in a trope, one that can spread harmful misinformation. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. 
And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Paul discovered that the stories about modern problems we see in the news today were also in the news in 1990, in 1930, and even in 1890. Even specific phrases repeat themselves time and time again. Like, no one wants to work anymore. It's not just in print. TV news also gets caught up. Why does no one want to work anymore? Sadly, due to government and state handouts, no one wants to work anymore. They can't get labor because no one wants to work in a factory anymore. Everyone loves to sue these days. No one wants to work hard. They don't want to work their way up. Nobody wants to work anymore. We are forced to reduce our hours during this week. Nobody wants to work. Everybody wants free money. All of a sudden, we don't want to uh, actually work anymore. No one wants to go out anymore. They just want to play Grand Theft Auto. It's a bit hard to gauge people's actual willingness to work. But in January 2023, the Canadian employment rate reached a record high of 85.3% for people aged 25 to 54. And labor output has been on an upswing since pandemic shutdowns ended. The facts actually seem to point to the opposite. We may be working more than ever. Paul says that the trope that no one wants to work anymore consistently centers employers as the experts and places the blame on workers instead of looking at poor working conditions. It's essentially about our relationship to labor, like being able to go back and so consistently find people saying, oh, nobody wants to work anymore, suggests that it's almost like some sort of like rhetorical tool about, oh, you know, I'm a a boss, I'm an employer, and I can't find people to work for me. That's probably what the problem is. But that doesn't mean that nobody wants to work anymore. It might mean that you're not paying a high enough wage, that you're not offering a, you know, good enough circumstances of work that the job isn't interesting or valued enough. Another story you can find in newspapers as far back as the 1800s is the idea that the art of conversation has died. Here's a sample from the archives. 1894. We live in such an age of hurry and rush that there is no time for elevating conversation or the exchange of ideas. 1969. They tell us the art of the conversation died when TV came in. 2018. Is our smartphone addiction killing the art of conversation? It's also seen on TV news as well. We don't converse anymore. We've lost that as an art of conversation. Are we losing the ability to actually have a conversation? The lost art of the family dinner, because people don't sit around the table and eat together anymore or or have conversations. Paul says he's noticed the idea of conversation being a dead art form usually crops up around the rise of new forms of communication. You'd see similar articles around the time of the invention of the radio, the TV, smartphones, and now Zoom. Again, like you look through the archives, you can see, you know, there's an example from 1969, 
Um, it says they, they tell us that the art of conversation died when TV came in. And you think, okay, well, you know, you, f- you find that one. You think there's, there's got to be something here. You can see, oh, people don't know how to talk to each other without alcohol. You know, so sort of in the post-prohibition era. And I mean, you read this phrase, the art of conversation, over and over enough, and you think... Like, how good was conversation even before? Like, I, you know, I think back to the 90s and it's not like it was sparkling, you know, Dorothy Parker style stuff all the time. I couldn't find one, but I'm sure someone complained about the telegraph ruining um, conversation. But it's people looking around, scrambling around for some sort of explanation. So just like whatever the latest technology or the latest innovation is, they end up blaming that on killing conversation. This is another trope where the opposite might actually be true. Technology today has allowed us to communicate more easily and more often than ever before. For example, while Zoom can be annoying, it allowed millions of people to stay connected during the pandemic. By perpetuating this idea that we no longer have real conversations, there's this fear around new technology that can actually improve our lives. Jean Allen has a phrase for the way that people like to think of the past as better than the present. The things ain't what they used to be narrative. We know there are many, many provable ways the present day is better than the past. There's less racism, for example. We live longer. But journalists and the rest of society fall for this type of thinking all the time. A joke I tell myself, you know, <laughs> I laugh at my own jokes, was when prehistoric people first gained the power of speech, I think one turned to the other and said, you know, things ain't what they used to be, right? I mean, it's always these narratives of decline, you know, that there was a past. I mean, as a historian... This is always something that you have to kind of um, steel yourself against because there's a sense that the past was wonderful in some ways that we have lost. And we've lost it because of technology or we've lost it because of moral failing or we've lost it for one reason or another. One of the fun things about being a historian is you get to actually look back and say, well, was it, was it actually all that much better? Was the golden age any more golden? You know, Some people in my field say, boy, the partisan press was great because they treated people as citizens and they put their political biases out there explicitly and this namby-pamby mass audience stuff was, you know, just based on trying to get ad revenue. But if you actually look at that coverage, it's not very informative. I mean, it's, it's basically propaganda. Like during the Jazz Age, when, according to the papers, jazz was the cause of everything from bad marriages to death. Does a jazzing woman make a good wife or a jazzing man make a good husband? No. The so-called jazz age is an important contributing factor in the alarming increase of deaths from heart failure. Big ears are an outcropping of the present jazz era. Jazz music with meals is so stimulating that it can take too much blood away from the stomach and it causes indigestion. And the same thing happened during the time when bicycle riding became popular among women. Where does a wheel as a way? But with bicycles, the way has been rather tortuous, as these pictures of the old hobby horse for the use of ladies won. There were no traffic signals in those rollicking days. It has definitely been decided by both medical and lay authorities that there is such a thing as a, quote, bicycle face. A Washington physician says the bicycle is responsible for the prevalence of appendicitis. Paul tells me it's clear how a fear of change, or desire for the status quo, is what's behind a lot of these stories. Like the one about Bicycle Face, which he believes came out of a fear of an emerging women's rights movement. Yes, so it's sort of part of a a genre of complaints where 
the bicycle was affecting basically every body part that you can uh, imagine. There's bicycle eye, bicycle arm, bicycle leg, bicycle kidney, bicycle whatever you want to fill in. You could play, um, what's that game, Operation, but with bicycle parts, I think. But bicycle face was a worried expression that was sort of permanently set in the, in the face of people who cycle a lot. Life became just one mad whirl. The way it was written about, it was like, oh, you know, woman, you should worry about bicycle leg because it's going to be too muscular and masculine looking and you're not going to have a, a lovely feminine leg anymore. You're going to have this horrible, gigantic, muscled leg. And, and you can start to get a little bit of the sense of probably what's going on here, especially women were cycling a lot more in the, in the 1890s. And you can read other historical accounts where people were thinking, oh, now that women are cycling around by themselves, they can transport without the company of a man to help them ride a horse. But there was a general worry that now women were free to, to kind of go about as they were. And you can, you can now start to think about, you know, things as humorous as bicycle faces, like trying to inject a little bit of worry about beauty standards being compromised by cycling. And it sort of takes on a, a bit of a darker tone, as fun as it is to read about bicycle face normally is. This episode is brought to you by Article. Um, it is time to go al fresco. That is a, a pleasant thing to say, a pleasant thing to think about. It's a nice thing to do. I have used Article to really take my outdoor space seriously. And it is like, why live in Canada if you are not going to spend as much time outside as nature will allow you to? And making it really nice outside is a big part of that. Article has you covered for incredible design choices, coastal, industrial, Scandinavian, bohemian. The stuff looks great. It's a pleasure to shop for. It's a pleasure when it arrives. And it is sturdy, I'm finding, because I'm now on like year three with some of this stuff. If you have not yet settled on a look for your alfresco layout, do not worry. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. And they will not leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery time. They will send you updates every step of the way. And this deal is incredible. They are offering our listeners $50 off of your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, you visit article.com slash CanadaLand, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. One more time, article.com slash CanadaLand for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. We see the same kinds of tropes in stories published today, especially when it comes to new technology. Whether it's video games, screen time, TikTok, you only have to turn the TV on to see stories about how these technologies are stunting kids' brains or driving them to lives of violence and crime. And let's not forget about the new danger. The growing dangers of AI. This might be more dangerous than we have any idea. Generative AI is upending some companies in how they do business. School districts are now blaming chat GPT uh, on cheating concerns. And now a group of AI experts calling for a pause, worried about the potential harm. The worst case scenario is obviously that we humans gradually lose more and more control over our, our civilization. Of course, there are pros and cons to every new technology. But these types of stories seem to spread fear rather than provide useful information. Well, they might be right about AI. In choosing what to report on, who to include as experts, and how to frame stories, Jean Allen says that reporters can often be caught up in the trap of a moral panic, 
or just pandering to an already panicked audience searching for answers. It's a question of moral panic, right? That, that there's a moral failing. Moral failings are the cause of whatever ill you want to mention. That something is causing them to have moral failing, like the telephone in the 1890s, you know, that allowed young men to speak to young women, you know, unchaperoned, right? And this was terrible, terrible thing, you know, breaking down all norms of social propriety. So this question of either, there's a lot of stuff about technology, uh, not to say that certain technologies don't have problematic social effects, they do for sure. But there is that sense of moral failing, moral standards, moral practices are called into question. And it's easy to sort of say, well, if people, if just people weren't lazy, if they tried harder, we would be okay um, looking for individual rather than social explanations of, of what's happening. Gene says this all goes back to the use of age-old storytelling devices, which create a satisfying and familiar, if not totally factual, story. It's been documented how the pressure for a good story, as well as the pressure to succeed in the industry, can have a big impact on what stories get covered. And sometimes, either consciously or unconsciously, reporters end up shaping their stories into those familiar narratives they know so well. The pressures of having to file on a 24-hour news cycle and the competition for traffic might also lead to these narrative shortcuts. The one thing I would say about that is there are many, many different kinds of journalism, right? You know, there are lots of journalists doing different things. But there is, in some places uh, and in some organizations, a tendency to come back to these well-worn paths again again and again because it's a, it's a satisfying kind of story for people. It's an emotionally satisfying story. There's a clear villain. You know, there's somebody you can blame. You know, oh, yeah, that's what's wrong. That's why things are going to hell. And so it, it's emotionally satisfying. There is a lot of good journalism out there these days. And there are news outlets making concerted efforts to improve reporting on race, gender, the environment, and lots more. Journalists are trained in data and investigative techniques. We have access to facts and evidence. I asked him if he thought reporters might have gotten better at challenging these kinds of tropes compared to the old days. Turns out that it's kind of a complicated question. Different forms have different strengths and weaknesses. And the era of social media journalism has some strengths, barriers to entry. You don't have to have $20 million to build a huge printing plant anymore, you know. So more people reflecting different perspectives can come in and get their message out. So you can get a greater diversity of views. You can get more feedback from the audience. There are just fewer people who are paid to try and find reliable information on a full-time basis or more difficult for younger people in the business to have a, a solid career, uh, you know, where they can develop their skills over, you know, 20 or 30 years. And, you know, the whole problem of social media as uh, its promotion of emotionally satisfying hits in order to keep its adherence, you know, on the platform for as long as possible. That's what we're talking about in a turbocharged way. You know, there are a lot of people in newsrooms now churning out stuff every day you can't go into a huge historical archival investigation for every daily story you're going to write. And in journalism schools, I guess, you know, just try and be aware of not unconsciously falling into these patterns, you know. Be aware of what is the narrative implication of what you're saying, what is the choice you've made, but what the story is. Because with the news industry shrinking, there are less reporters out there than they used to be. There's also a seemingly infinite number of other information sources. Literally anyone can set up a website, YouTube channel, or podcast, 
and start making content, as biased and unfactual as they want it to be. The majority of the information people are consuming today feels eerily similar to the partisan, hysterical press of the past. That is your Canada land. Listen, if you value this podcast, this is the very best time to support us. Right now, we rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But more than anything, you'll become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by Cherie Suturin. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production from Tristan Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Special thanks this week to my colleagues Cassidy villabrun Baracus, Eviva Lassard, and Jessica Valentin. I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.